interesting note this week about a man in history named Karl Marx. He's a self-proclaimed defender of the working class people. <laughs> yeah, there's a historical study that was done and it showed that he really didn't know anybody from the working class. He had no relationships or friendships among working class people at all. He was the defender of the working class. It showed that he even worked really hard to insulate himself so he didn't have to interact with any of those common people. There was one person in his life who was from the working class. It was his wife's maid by whom he had a son who he denied publicly who went on to be a, locom a locomotive engineer and he was a part of the union. So he was a part of the working class but not his dad, the defender of the working class. The reason I tell you this, there's a point. The point is, I see this over and over again throughout all of humanity, all of us find it really difficult to live up to some of the ideas that we say that we love and that we say that we support. And sometimes you find that the people who have the loudest voices about an idea are the same people who are the biggest affront to those same ideas. And if you take it to our story, I think that it's true that for a lot of us, it is easier to say that we love God and that we love people and that we're fighting for God's good in people's lives than it is to actually love the people themselves. And there's a relationship there. The, the way that we love people or the lack of love that we have for other people tells a lot of truth about what we really believe and what we really value with our lives. There's a relationship with there. Even the Bible gives a perspective that the way we love other people tells us a lot about the health of our relationship with God. That's the way Jesus talked about it. Jesus talked with Peter after the resurrection, after he met with the disciples and had a good breakfast with them by the sea. He went on a walk with Peter in John 21, and he said to him, Peter, three times, Peter, do you love me? And three times Peter says, Jesus, of course I love you, man. You know all things, and so you know how deeply I love you. And three times Jesus then looks at Peter and says, if you love me, tend my lambs. If you love me, feed my sheep. If you love me, tend my sheep. In other words, if you love me, then look out for and care for other people. Because it's hard for us to see the way we love God, but the way we love God is revealed in the way that we treat other people. There's a relationship there. I love what Patrick shared with me this week. He heard this and was quick to share it. He heard, found people, find people. You hear that? I once was lost, but now I'm found, right? I was blind, but now I see. Found people go and find people. Are healed people are healing people. And something we've said around here before is saved people serve people. And I want to hold those things up to you because this morning, that's exactly what Jesus will hold up in front of the audience that he's speaking with in our text. I want you to grab your Bible. We'll pick up kind of where we left off last week in Luke chapter 10. We were at the beginning of the chapter. We'll be at the end of the chapter. In Luke 10, we're going to talk about the care we have for other people and the habits of care that we build that characterize our lives. And we're going to look at a parable, a story that Jesus made up to make a point to help people to understand what it is that he really cares about. And it's probably the most familiar parable that Jesus ever taught. People everywhere know this story. The context of it is a law expert approaches Jesus. And this isn't like civil law, it's religious law. Think of him more as a uh, scholar and a theologian than a practicing litigator. But he comes to Jesus and he's going to ask Jesus a question about eternity and about having a right relationship with God in heaven. 
And so he's going to ask this question not to seek understanding, but to try to trip Jesus up and see if he can get Jesus saying the wrong thing in response to this question about having a good relationship with God and having eternity with him. So he asks the question, and Jesus hears the question, and he knows that this guy really already knows the answer to the question. And so in verse 26 of chapter 10, Jesus counters. He says, well, law expert, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And I don't know exactly, we don't have details of what this man's face did at the moment. Jesus asks him, you tell me what the law says, but I'm pretty sure that he hitched up his pants and he puffed out his chest and he stuck up his chin because he begins just quoting scripture at Jesus. And the first thing he quotes is Deuteronomy 6.5. He says, well, you want to know the answer to the question that I asked you, but now you're telling me to answer the question? The answer is, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, strength, Right? And then he quotes Leviticus 19.18 and adds to it, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He probably did a pretty smug look on his face as he did so because it is a brilliant answer. It is absolutely an incredible answer. Deuteronomy 6 is the very heart of the law of God, and Deuteronomy 6.5 encompasses really the first four of the Ten Commandments. It tells us how to have a faithful and healthy relationship with the God who made us and the God who loves us. And then he adds Leviticus 19.18, which encompasses the next six of the Ten Commandments and tells us how to have a good relationship with other people. So he has given this beautifully perfect answer. He's laid it out before Jesus, and we know that it's the right answer because there was another time when a Pharisee approached Jesus and said, Jesus, what's most important to God? And Jesus said the very same thing, didn't he? He quoted the same two verses. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So this guy has given a perfect answer, and Jesus, in response, looks at him in verse uh, 28, and he says, you've answered correctly, do this, and you will live. And I think this is just really fun, because Jesus, I don't think he's toying with the guy, but it's a little bit like, good boy, you did good, good boy, now go go play now. There's a, a point that's being made that life is found in a heart relationship with God that affects and shapes every other relationship that you have throughout all the days of your life. And this guy has come to Jesus. Now he's looking kind of silly in front of his friends because he came to trip Jesus up to get him to say the wrong thing. And he doesn't even, Jesus doesn't even give him the answer. Jesus turns it on him and now he's answered his own question and Jesus says, good boy, you did good. Now go practice what you preach. And we don't know if it's embarrassment or if it's just frustration that he didn't, you know, come, he came to attack and now he's just answered his own question. But it says he begins to justify himself in verse 29. Wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, okay, well, if you're so smart, well, who is my neighbor? And again, he's not seeking understanding. He's messing around, he's playing a game here spiritually. And if we're honest, probably we are much more quickly aligned with this guy and trying to justify ourselves than we would like to admit. We would be quick to go, and who is my neighbor? And it's not because his command to love other people is complicated. It's just that our hearts are very conflicted about it. 
On one hand, we hear what God says. This man, he knows the law of God. He's a law expert, and he's perfectly quoted the scriptures. He knows what God has said to do, and yet we will hear what God calls us to do, and we will look in and around and through it and try to find some way where on one hand we can agree this is right, but on the other hand, there's a theological or practical loophole to where I can hear what Jesus says and agree and say that's exactly right, but... It doesn't exactly apply to me in the situation that I'm in right now. That's what this guy's done. He's basically looking for an escape hatch out of this conversation. And Jesus knows this. He hears the answer. He hears the follow-up question. And he knows that it's a game. It's an escape hatch kind of question. And so he goes into storytelling mode. And here's the parable. Verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And the man fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. By chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and he saw him, he also passed by on the other side. But, verse 33, a Samaritan who was on a journey, he came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion And he came to him and he bandaged up his wounds and he was pouring oil and wine on them and he put him on his own beast and he brought him to an inn and he took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii. He gave him to the innkeeper and he said to the innkeeper, now you take care of him and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you for this. So in this story, he describes this path from from, uh, Jerusalem to Jericho. And this path, uh, this road, was about a 17-mile stretch of road that was known in the first century to be called the Way of Blood. And that's because it was a great place to be held up and mugged by bad guys. It was a lonely, barren road. And people would find themselves in danger a lot of times if they traveled alone. And so Jesus takes this story and he formulates the story, but he's ripping it out of the headlines. He's giving them something that they can actually relate to in their day and they can begin to see themselves in this situation, right? And so he begins to tell them this story that one day there was a lone traveler going along the way of blood. And as it goes in that day, someone stopped him and they beat him and they they took his money and they stripped him down and they left him near dead on the side of the road. But... It's not the worst news because there is hope coming. Church people are coming, right? There's a priest and a Levite coming, and they don't know. They're not traveling together, and they don't know they're both headed along this road, and the guy who's beat on the side of the road doesn't know it, but it's good news because church people are on their way, right? It's good news. Then there's a plot twist as Jesus tells the story because the priest comes along, and instead of coming along and Bending down to help the guy, he crosses to the other side of the road and he never even breaks stride, which is really disappointing to hear. It's, you know, one of our guys kind of thing. So it looks bad, but it's not all lost because a Levite is coming and he, the Levite is a good guy. He's like an associate pastor. He's used to helping and serving and leading in the temple. Of course, this guy is going to help, but he doesn't. He crosses to the other side of the road and follows the example of the priest, not knowing it had just happened, but he just goes the other way and, and keeps on moving. And now we're beginning to have a little concern. What's wrong with the church people? Like these are supposed to be the good guys, but they keep crossing to the other side of the road, moving away from the person in need and leaving them behind. There's bad news here. And I wonder, a lot of us wonder, why did the priest and the Levite not stop? 
Those should have been the people that we would have expected to stop and help. And we don't know. Jesus didn't tell us why, but people love to speculate. We love to think about it. And so some people have said, well, maybe, because this is a priest and a Levite, you know, maybe this kind of work is beneath them, that they've got the call of God on their life. And so they've got to go do God's work over here, and they just don't have time to do God's work over here. Maybe that's the reason. We don't know. Other people have said, well, maybe it's because they had gone to Jerusalem and they had become ceremonially clean for the work of ministry. They had become ceremonially clean. And so if they're headed back on this trip from Jerusalem to Jericho and they happen upon a guy who's been beaten within an inch of his life, if they go to help him and that guy dies on their watch or they touch his body once he's died, according to their custom, they would now be unclean, which means they'd have to go all the way back to Jerusalem and start the whole process over again. So it's just this really annoying just nuisance in their life. It's really, really inconvenient for them in case something happens here to stop, get sidetracked, and have to go through the whole thing all over again. And so maybe that's the reason that they didn't stop. We don't know. Some people have said possibly it's not that, but maybe they thought it was just a dangerous situation still because they are on the the road that's called the way of blood. And so they they think, well, somebody has beaten this guy. What if that somebody's still hiding out here somewhere? We stop by here and they jump us. What if they take me and they, they do to me what they did to him? Or maybe they'd seen that movie where, you know, the guy's faking and they're thinking, you know, maybe he stripped himself down and like threw himself against a rock or something to where he'd look beaten up. But when I go over to help him, he springs up with a shotgun and boom, you know, and then I'm dead. That didn't make any sense. No, it's a lot safer for me on this dangerous part of town to just move on around and get going. That, in my mind is much safer than stopping in dangerous territory to try to help this guy. Now, we, we don't know. We like to think about it, and we could go on brainstorming all day about the reasons why the priest and the Levite didn't stop. It's almost like a joke, a priest, a Levite, and a good Samaritan go into a bar, right? You find the punchline. But we don't know exactly why. If we go thinking about the reasons why, I think probably what we would do is spend all of our time projecting our own experiences and our own feelings into this story to try to make the story bend around us instead of us bend around this story. And we would either be projecting reflections of what we have felt when we saw someone in need and the things that we went through to not help that person in need. We go, well, you know, maybe they were busy or maybe they had a really important thing going on and we just put that on top of them or else we would look at them and we'd begin to reflect on the people who didn't help us when we were in need and how we feel about that. And so either we would look at the priest and Levite and go, I mean, y'all take it easy. These guys have been getting a bad rap for thousands of years here. Let's give them a little bit of credit. We don't know what was going on in their life because I've had moments like this too, or else we would be like off with their heads, you know, because someone wasn't there for me and didn't stop and help me when I was in trouble. And it was awful. And it was awful. The fact is, we don't have the reason why Jesus didn't tell us. He just says that they didn't stop. That's not his primary focus, the motive for them not stopping. It's not in the foreground. It's in the background. What Jesus puts in the foreground is meant to lead his listeners into action, not to contemplation and not into judgment, which is what we're already experts at, contemplating our motives, and judging other people's motives. What he is highlighting is meant to push people into action. 
And I was thinking this week about, you guys remember our friend Kurt Gensel, who was on staff here for several years? Kurt's coming back in October to preach on a Sunday. Make sure you mark your calendar. Yeah, it's going to be fun. October uh, 29th, you'll mark your date. We're going to have high attendance Sunday that Sunday. People love Kurt. He's good for a story, right? Kirk will be here, but I remember Kirk saying this one time. He said, sometimes the things that Jesus leaves out of a story matter as much as the things that he puts in a story. Does that make sense? Sometimes the things that Jesus leaves out of a story tells us as much as the things that he puts in the story. And here we've got a priest and a Levite, and we don't know why Jesus left out why they didn't stop. We're meant to be bothered by them, but it's possible that if we were told exactly why they didn't stop, that we would just make it our effort, our ambition to not do the thing that they did in the same way they did it. But we would find 150 other reasons to not stop when we come upon someone who is in need. Jesus doesn't tell us why he didn't stop. We're meant to be bothered by it, but it's there to sit in contrast and that we might begin to move towards action when we see the person who does stop. And you think about, why are they in the story at all? Because Jesus could have just given a story where he said there was a guy, and he was on a road, and he got beaten, and he got you know, taken for everything he had. And then there was a good guy, and he was come along on his own, and he stopped, and he helped him. And, and it's the end of the story. So go be like the good guy. But he didn't. He gives us a priest and a Levite. And I think the reason is to just create this, this collision of contrast in this moment. Not that we would contemplate all the reasons why they did not, but just the fact that they did not would really highlight the fact that this one guy, he did. And it would lead us to begin to to decide for ourselves, will we be people who act in compassion and love, or will we be people who stop for whatever reason short of doing so? They're there so that when we would see this good Samaritan, we would begin to see this thing rise up in us when we look upon people We would begin to evaluate them and our moment in our life, and we would begin to see them as more significant and more important than ourselves. Because that's what the Levite and the priest did not do for whatever reason, but it's what the Good Samaritan did do. We'll talk about him more in a moment. But ultimately, the Good Samaritan is there as a sign for us of Jesus. It's the thing that Jesus did. And he calls all of his people to do. Think about Philippians 2. It says to the people of Jesus, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Where does that come from? Verse 5, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who... Although he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The thing that I really want to draw out of Jesus' parable before this tax collector today is that we are to count other people as more significant than ourselves. It's what Jesus did, and it's what he calls his people to do. When we see other people, whoever they are, to count them as more important than ourselves. Without that, guess what? We'll never stop. Without valuing other people as more important than ourselves, we'll never stop to help anyone in need. And no one will ever stop to help us when we're in need either. You understand that? 
But this isn't a human endeavor thing, right? This isn't we just need to be nice. The gospel is never a call simply to just be nice. This is a thing that God is doing. It's a thing that he does and a thing that he continues to do in and through his people. I have absolutely no time for this this morning, but I have homework for you. I want you to go home and read Ezekiel 1 and Daniel 7. And, and these two passages are rooted in the Old Testament story that's been a part of this series where thousands, tens of thousands of God's people have been pulled from their homeland and they're living as exiles in Babylon. Their home has been crushed and burned. Their, some of their children have been killed. Their life has been stripped from them. And in this time, both Ezekiel and Daniel receive a vision from the Lord to share with his people. And in the vision, Daniel and Ezekiel in both cases get a vision of God's throne. Not of God himself because it would be too much for them to handle. Their faces would melt like on Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. It just would, and then the story's over. They get a vision of the throne of God, and the throne of God is meant to represent the presence of God. And in both of these cases, it's really interesting. The throne of God is fixed on wheels. And those wheels are aimed in multiple directions. And one of them, it says that the wheels are blazing with fire, which is like holy spinners in my mind. But, but these, the throne of God is fixed with wheels in both cases. And while these tens of thousands of God's people are stripped from their home, this vision is meant to be a prophecy to them to remind them that there's nowhere that you are in this world that your God cannot be near you. He's not far from you. He is near to you. He's not static. He's not still. Our God is on the move. And God moves. It's his plan, and it always has been his plan. He moves in and through his people. That's what God does. Godly love, godly love always moves toward another. Ephesians 2, 4 says, but God being rich in mercy. John three sixteen says, he so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. The author, the perfecter of love, the one who the Bible calls love himself, it says God is love. He stepped into, Romans 5 says, into our anarchy against him to redeem us and make us his people. Ephesians 2, 5 says to give us life. We once were dead, but now we've been made alive in him. John 1.12 says he transforms us from children of wrath into children of God so that we can know him and we can come close to him. We can see him and we can love him supremely. And because we love him supremely, we can love other people rightly. And what does that look like? What is the kind of love that he has loved us with? What he's loved us with the kind of love that moves toward another and gives its own life for its brother, right? That's what godly love looks like. Godly love is wrapped up. It, it has its, its originating force, its power, its originating presence in God himself who is love. And from there moves out from a relationship with him to the relationships that we have with everyone around us in our lives. God does this. Jesus did this. The Holy Spirit does this as he dwells with you, as he helps you, as he guides you, as he empowers you, as he moves you through this life, this is the way that God loves. The good Samaritan did this in Jesus' story, and every one of God's people are called to do this too. 1 John 3 says, But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let's all receive this from from. A father sitting in front of a fireplace, little children, let us not love with word or tongue, 
Let us love in deed and truth. Jesus said that when we love other people in, in a whole myriad of ways, he gave several examples. Essentially, he said, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. And then he added this. He said, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. And that's how closely our relationship with God is intertwined with our relationships with all of the other people that we encounter throughout our lives. And if life is found in this heart relationship with God that shapes all of the other aspects of our life, then my relationship with Jesus must move me with compassion into the lives of those around me, no matter what they're going through. If I abide in Him and He abides in me, then I should love other people in deed and in truth. You follow so far? The word compassion is what stands up off the page for me here. The word compassion is one that I want you to think about. It says a lot about how I think about other people, how I view other people, how I see other people. If we're honest, a lot of us, most of our days, as we look at other people, begin to sort them into two categories, assets and annoyances. That's a filter. We just do that. We go through into a room and we begin seeing people and we go, asset, annoyance, asset, asset, annoyance, asset, annoyance. And we go, I'm going to spend my time and my energy. I'm going to get my joy. I'm going to put my work into all of the assets because this is beneficial to me. This is good. I love it. And the annoyances, I'm just going to put all my effort in staying far away from them because I don't want to be annoyed by them. But guess what? Neither one of those filters have anything to do with compassion, assets, and annoyances. The good Samaritan here, it says he looked upon the, the man on the side of the road and he felt compassion. Verse 34, he came to him, he bandaged him, he brought him to an inn and he took care of him. And so Jesus then looks at the tax or the, the law expert at the end of this parable and he asks him, which of these three, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan, which of these three do you think proved to be the man who to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands. And the law expert said to Jesus, well, I guess it's the one who showed mercy towards him. And Jesus said, now you go and do the same. Church, there's a difference between looking and seeing. And the priest and the Levite looked, but they did not see. They didn't see as they should. The good Samaritan, he looked and he saw in Jesus's story. He looked and he saw him because he saw he had compassion. It reminds us of Mark 6. We looked at this what, a month and a half ago, two months ago, after Jesus had sent the disciples out in twos to do all this work, and they came back, and they were excited, and they were exhausted. They didn't even have time to eat, and Jesus said, the thing that you need to do right now is stop working and come alone with me and have a time of quiet and rest in me. But just as soon as they started having some good time together, Jesus looked and he saw the crowds that were coming after them. And what did Jesus do? It says he had compassion on them. When Jesus looked and he saw, he had compassion on people. And it says he had compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so he set aside rest time and he moved in love towards those who were in need. If you are a person who likes sermon points and likes writing things down, I'll give you three really quickly. All right? First point. Compassion doesn't discriminate. 
Passion doesn't discriminate. I think there's a reason, speculating, but I think it's pretty fair speculation. I think there's a reason that Jesus chose the hero in this story to be a Samaritan when he was speaking to a Jewish religious law expert. There was a, a very broken relationship between Jews and Samaritans. These are people who would not interact with each other. Jews would go around Samaria and never cross through so they didn't have to interact with Jews. Jesus made the hero of this story a Samaritan to throw it right in the guy's face that your neighbor has nothing to do with people you like or agree with on different aspects of life. That your neighbor may be the person that you don't agree with about everything in life and it may be the very person that you have considered your enemy for some reason. Right? Compassion doesn't discriminate. Our need isn't to define who our neighbor is. It's just to care for people. It's just to love people with the love of God. Second point is this. Compassion is rarely convenient. I said that to someone this morning. They said, I don't think it's ever convenient. Rarely convenient. Maybe never convenient. A lot of us have kind of like a, an open for business sign. Now I am open to help you. And then we flip it over. I'm no longer available to help you now. We have some pretty tight lines on when I am available. I'll help you from 8 to 5, or I'll help you on the weekend, or I'll help you on Tuesday nights is when I'm available to help people. But the reality is life doesn't work that way. And there are people in need at all times everywhere you go. There are people who have all kinds of needs around you. And it's rarely convenient to stop and to help them. You look at this good Samaritan, and I mean... The guy is weird. He's strange. What does he do? He's on a journey, and he has no trouble being sidetracked to help a person in need. And when he sees the person in need, it's not a quick answer. He didn't throw money on the side of the road at him. He didn't throw a religious tract at him. He didn't throw some old clothes on him and say, good luck with this, buddy. I'm praying for you, and then take off. No, he got sidetracked, and he got his hands dirty as he began to tend to the guy's wounds. And then he put him on his on his beast, on his donkey or whatever, and he is now walking while the other guy is riding and he takes him to someone else and says, you take care of him, I'm going to cover the cost and I'm coming back for him, right? Compassion is rarely convenient. Genuine compassion entangles our lives with the needs of broken people. And when we get involved, it almost always causes us grief. It does. The fact is, it's a grief that Jesus bore himself for our sake, and he advocates that love and action is worth every grief because of the things that he is doing in and through it, because it comes from God. Second point is compassion is rarely convenient, and your third point is this, the opposite of love isn't hate, it's inaction. The opposite of love isn't hate, it's inaction. Since the first and the second greatest commandments, according to Jesus, are involved right here. We know that this is important to God. And so perhaps the best thing that we can do is to take an honest and lingering look at our own habits of love. To consider how, how hard it is for us to stop when we see someone in need. Or how long it's been since we've seen someone in need. Because if we haven't seen, I would all my money that we just haven't looked. We've looked but not seen. How about that? Philippians 2.12 talks about working out our salvation with fear and trembling. And so I want to invite you into just for a few moments to take a, a 
a lingering and honest look and ask the Holy Spirit to work out your salvation in fear and trembling, to exercise the muscles of your salvation that you would see with spiritual eyes and not just with physical ones, that we would be challenged as a people to love as Jesus loves in all of the places that we go throughout this week. And maybe as we sit for just a moment slowing down, which some of us never slow down, maybe if we would sit for just a moment and be honest and ask the Holy Spirit to help us to see, then maybe we could ask His help in knowing what to do with what we discover. So I want to end this morning by that. I'm going to open a, a prayer, and I won't close it by saying, in Jesus' name, amen. I will just leave it open to you to continue conversation with God, and I'd love for you to take just a couple of minutes. And be honest before the Lord and say, Lord, in what ways has compassion moved me to love? In what habits of care are characterizing my life? And in what ways can you increase my reach of love and care among the people that you've placed me? Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for a clever and helpful and holy story that came not just from your mind, but came out of your heart. And not one that you just thought up, but one that you were living out in the moment that you told the story. Because we're called to be like the Good Samaritan, but the Good Samaritan was you. You were the one who came into a way of blood and walked along a path and saw people lying on the road within an inch of their life. And you stopped. And you tended wounds with compassion and care. Your heart was broken for our brokenness. And you loved perfectly and you didn't just throw help at us, but you took us and you carried us exactly to where we needed to be. You were the good Samaritan who tended to all of our needs and said, I will come back for you. <laughs> and so we thank you for this just, I mean, today famous story known by people who don't even read the Bible, but they know the story of the Good Samaritan. But we thank you that within it, there are layers and layers of never-ending beauty and meaning for those who are in Christ Jesus. And uh, Holy Spirit, we pray this morning, you'd help us to slow for a moment and be honest with ourselves. I mean, even in a week when I'm, I'm reading about the Good Samaritan, I'm finding myself saying, I'm too busy writing this sermon to go and help this person. <laughs> How easy it is for us to not stop. Help us to be a people who are so overwhelmed with the wonders of your love that we can't help but allow it to flow out of us and through us and to those around us. Not so that we are nice people, but so that they would see us and they would worship our Father who is in heaven. And so would you help us now to see with humility and integrity, the truth. And then would you help us to have our lives more aligned with yours? In Jesus' name, this is your time.